Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. The Costa Book Award winners have been announced. And we're recommending books all about doubles. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Hello there. Every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics. So if you love reading or just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. Thank you for joining us. As always, we've got a packed show for you. The overall Costa Book Awards is chosen from a shortlist of the Costa category winners and we'll be announcing which authors have won these prestigious awards this year and which book was chosen as the overall winner. And this book will be first broadcast on the 2nd of the 2nd, 22. Surely something significant happening there. So we're looking at books for the broad theme of doubles. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. Yes, indeed. And don't forget, we really do like to uh, hear from you. So please do get in touch um, with any of your news items or anything you'd like to tell us about. Uh, You can contact me at julian at river.radio. So let's uh, let's start with a quick uh, roundup of what book stories have been in the news recently. And I found one here, Heather, which uh, is about blowing up meteors, guiding a strange bird over mountain ranges and skiing in an elaborate fantasy world may not sound like a typical part of, of teaching your child to read. But we have some good news for all of those computer game addicts out there. Apparently, action and adventure video games that challenges a player's memory at attention and reasoning skills can improve a child's reading speed and accuracy, even if they don't contain any reading uh, tasks themselves. And this was uh, compiled by a group of uh, uh, academics in in Italy recently. Well, that sounds very promising because I was reading a more sobering (laughs) article, actually, which is talking about how many children nowadays are arriving at senior school with a reading age of just six. Gosh, that's awful. It's terrible, which, Mm. of course, hampers their entry Mm. into all other lessons Mm. that that they'll be doing. So two years ago, there was approximately 200,000 children who were identified as not being able to read at the appropriate standard. And it's felt that this is set to rise this year um, due to the pandemic. So heads are asking sixth form six formers to run reading sessions, Mm -hmm. and others are encouraging retired teachers to come back to help. Gosh, so indeed. So it shows you the importance of reading to our young when they're little. Very much so. Very much so. Well, this uh, this other little piece of information is nothing really to do in, in, it is to do with reading in a way, but there are dismayed villagers um, in Somerset who are threatening legal action to save the rectory of the parishes of Orr and Colburn, as they say, in, Sim- um, in Somerset. Uh, and this parish has actually provided the setting for uh, both the, the Lorna Doon, the novel Lorna Doon, and it was the place where Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote in, wrote in, in Xanadu, did a couple of car and a stately pleasure at 
own degree. Now, the church authorities, um, that's a, a church house, have uh, they're planning to link the parishes, or rather the parish of this beautiful 15th century church, uh, together with another parish so that they can combine them under one ministry and then sell the rectory for a profit. Now, the villagers are against the plan as they really would like to use the rectory as an incentive to help attract a diet vicar to come to the village. The consultation process has begun, oh. and, but it's also a good magnet for tourism and for fans of Lorna Doon and Kubla Khan. Yes, because I love that poem, don't you? Mm, it is a great one. Yeah. Right, now for all those people who are looking for holiday ideas, there is a chance to mix with the stars on the high seas coming up this December. So if you're interested in cruises, this might be for you. It's a literature festival organised by the folks who do the Cheltenham Literary Festival with superstar authors such as Ian Rankin, Mary Beard and Richard Osman, who will be your entertainment for a transatlantic crossing on the majestic Queen Mary 2. So uh, Cunard's Literature Festival at Sea takes place over seven nights, crossing from New York to Southampton, and includes talks, book signings, Q&A sessions, and a chance to hobnob with your favourite writers. Sounds mm. great. That's, uh, yes, and particularly at the Midnight Buffet, you can have a good chimwag with the authors. I bet they'll all be there. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, there, there's a, a prize coming up um, uh, for people to uh, enter, and it's the P.G. Woodhouse Society has announced uh, that they're running a, a UK essay prize this year to mark, if you believe, the 140th anniversary of the uh, author's birth, wow. of P.G. Woodhouse's birth. Yes. And it also um, links to the its own quarter of a century existence. Now, P.G. Woodhouse wrote over 100 books with the express intention of making his readers laugh. He once said, happiness comes from giving pleasure to others. Now, only Shakespeare has more citations in the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations. That's amazing, isn't it's, it? Isn't it? Uh, uh, quite stunning, quite stunning. Um, now, Woodhouse, uh, again, apart from writing his own novels, um, had other talents because he was involved in American musical theatre lyrics and actually did write uh, along with the Gershwins, for oh, example. I didn't know that. No, nor did I. Um, now, it's your turn, listeners, because the essay that has to be written is, is to be about an interesting aspect of P.G. Woodhouse's work. And there are two awards, and there's one going to be for um, un the under-19 category, and there's going to be one for over-19-year-old category. So there, are, so everybody's included. Essays will be judged by luminaries, including Stephen Fry and Sophie Radcliffe. Now, please go and take a look at the Society's website if you're interested and would like to enter. It's got all the information there. And the website address is www www.pgwoodhousesociety.org.uk So go and have a look and good luck. Oh, that sounds great. So I was reading a great article the other day about a grotto that was built by a writer who was described as the richest commoner in England. Mm. That, uh, that dates it, doesn't it? It does rather. <laughs> and anyway, it was this uh, grotto was thought to have been lost forever and it's just been rediscovered behind a patch of brambles in Bath. So the tower was built in 1827 by the eccentric William Beckford, who was a Gothic novelist, amongst other things. And one of his books was said to have inspired a poem by Lord Byron. Mm. So it was obviously he was in 
the right uh, group there. Mm. It was intended to house his library and art collection away from the hubbub of the city. And the grotto served as a tunnel to the base of the tower so he could enter the tower without being seen. I wonder what else he got up to in there. Mm. The tower fell into disrepair and then the tunnel was filled in after Beckford's death in 1844. So rediscovery was made by using an old black and white photo to work out where the entrance was. Yeah. Wouldn't that be amazing yeah, to have super. found yeah, it? Yeah, it's great. Anyway, they are going to develop it and make it a tourist attraction. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Well, here, um, hot on the heels of the P.G. Woodhouse um, uh, prize that I've just mentioned before. Um, here's another one um, being run by Penguin. Um, and uh, Penguin has relaunched its cover design award and it's opening it up to all aspiring book cover designers regardless of higher education status now the competition is asking budding designers to reimagine the cover of a best-selling book previously applicants had to be studying in a further education or higher education course to enter but that is no longer the case this year's books uh, cover three categories as adult fiction asking designers to reimagine the book award winning book Girl, Woman, Other by uh, Bernadine uh, Evaristo, which was published by Hamish Hamilton. The adult nonfiction choice is Diary of a Young Naturalist by uh, Dara McNulty, published by Ebri. And the children's um, selection is Murder Most Unlikely by Robin Stevens, which is published by Corgi Children's. Um, now, please do go um, onto the Penguin website for more information, but anybody who is artistic, go and Go and have a go. I think so, because book designs are amazing. They are. I mean, they're, yes, they're, they're vital. Yeah, they're vital. they are. And they really inspire you to buy yes. a book. Yes. Um, so not only is it good fun, it's, mm. uh, it's, it's vital for the book trade. So I it think is. any new designers out there, definitely well, uh, well exactly. worth trying. Now, I was reading that a first edition of Diamonds Are Forever, in which Ian Fleming thanks his friend and fellow author Paul Gallico for spreading his wings over my firstborn, which is reference to Casino Royale, Aww. is set to be auctioned as Gallico's private library goes up for sale. Oh. Um, so Paul Gallico is, of course, the American author of The Snow Goose. But he also wrote The Poseidon Adventure. Interesting. That's a very good combo, isn't it? Yes. Anyway, they used to work alongside each other as uh, journalists on the Sunday Times newspaper. Ah, right. Uh-huh. And um, Ian Fleming gave um, Paul Gallico his, uh, his manuscripts before he sent it out. And uh, Gallico was said to have urged him to get out of that office, kid, and write, <laughs> which, is, which is lovely. Um, and I think he got a first edition, a first copy of all uh, Ian Fleming's books. So that would be worth something. Uh, very much so, yes, and very much. if there are lovers of uh, Paul Gallico's work out there, a film adaption of his novel, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, is due out next month. Oh, yes. And uh, it's a great story. Um, and the film uh, was a film was made and Angela Lansbury played Mrs. Harris. Oh, oh well, so obviously yeah. this is a new one then. Great. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. 
Um, now, uh, you're listening to Turning Pages with uh, Heather and myself, Julian, and thank you for listening. And as Heather mentioned earlier uh, about the Cost of Book Awards, the category award for the winners of the Cost of Book Awards um, has uh, just been announced, and they go to the most enjoyable books of the year. Uh, so always come highly recommended, and we're delighted to confirm the following winners. So the first one is Open Water by Caleb Azuma Nelson. It's published by Viking and he wins the first novel awards. He's our debut novelist. And the book follows the lives of two young black British artists. He's a photographer and she's a dancer as they start to fall in love after meeting in a South East London pub. Nelson quit his job working in an Apple store to be able to spend time writing this book. So that was a very well wise decision. Yeah, congratulations. And yes, yeah, so yes, that's uh, justified his, his, his choice, yes. um, which is excellent. Um, the, the winner of the 2021 Novel Award goes to Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller, published by Fig Tree. Uh, this is her fourth novel, and it tells a, a, a very sad tale of a 51-year-old twins, Jeannie and Julius, who live in poverty and in rural isolation with their mother, Dot, until her death means they are at the risk of losing everything. And there's a twin book. Yes. Later on in the programme, we're talking about doubles. Yeah, doubles, indeed. So, John Preston, not the politician. uh, Not two Jags Preston. No. (laughs) (laughs) He wins the biography award with his book, Fall The Mystery of Robert Maxwell, published by Viking. So, judges call the book an epic, immersive, cinematic telling of the life of the late media mogul and MP. So, of course, Robert Maxwell has been in the news, I suppose, because of his daughter, Jelaine. Yes. So uh, that was probably a timely publication. Mm. And funnily enough, I just saw it. It's, it's, it's actually on um, uh, BBC iPlayer, if people want to watch it. It was, in fact, um, the film Maxwell uh, with uh, David, or should I say Sir David Suchet playing Maxwell. Ah, right. And it's towards the end of, uh, you know, when everything starts going wrong. And it, it was actually quite good. Yeah, it was very good. Right. Um, now, the, the, uh, the, the Kids by Hannah Lowe, which was published by uh, Blood Axe Books, wins the Poetry Award. Uh, this is her third collection and is a book of sonnets about teaching, learning, growing up and parenthood. And the final category award winner is for children's books. And that was won by Manjeet Mann for The Crossing, which is a verse novel inspired by the refugee crisis about two teenagers from very different worlds. Mm. And the winner of the overall award is chosen from one of these five books. And the worthy winner is... Hannah Lowe with Kids for her poetry book about teaching, learning, growing up and parenthood. So congratulations to Hannah Lowe, a worthy winner. Yes, well done. That's great. It's interesting that uh, it's a poetry book. Yes, yes. So novels Uh, mostly win, but poetry's had quite a good showing. I think sort of eight out of the, the, the last... Uh, eight out of the awards have um, yes. have gone to the post, and that will please uh, one of our regular listeners, Mrs. Uh, Joy Pennells in Seven Oaks, because she's a great fan of of poetry and reads an awful lot and can recite lots of poems from memory. Excellent. She'll like this one, I think. Yeah, I think so. That's a book to be given, I think. Mm-hmm. So it is, as I said, the second of the second. Uh, 
2022. And so we thought, as we're seeing double today, that we'd explore doubles in books as a theme in celebration of this date. So in Tudor times, artists and playwrights were fascinated by twinship. Two of Shakespeare's most popular comedies centre around twins, of course. We've got Mm. The Comedy of Errors, which is about two sets of identical twins and a farcical mixer. And the other is Twelfth Night, about a shipwrecked pair of twins who are separated and end up causing all sorts of mayhem in Illyria. Perhaps it was because Shakespeare himself was the father of twins. Um, Hamnet and Judith. So, of course, Hamnet is the uh, Maggie O'Farrell book that uh, mm-hmm. has been doing so well uh, <laughs> recently. And uh, so Shakespeare wrote about twins as individual people uh, rather than anything unnatural. Mm. But a lot of the other Tudor playwrights and, um, and authors saw them as sort of slightly sinister Mm. Um, and of course, there is. There could be something as a sort of creepy lookalike. So you've got Stanley Kubrick with The Shining and things like that. So there mm. is something about twins that um, could seem to be sinister. But of course, now they've always played an important, prominent role in our collective culture. So we've picked uh, a number of books, and you've got a really interesting choice as your first one because it's not. It's not a twin book per se is it not really but we'll find out well i've chosen um the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde which as everyone knows was um written by robert louis stevenson it was first published in 1866 now though the story of dr jekyll and mr hyde is is well known everybody knows the story uh, principally because of the numerous films that have been made from the book it's an early exercise in exploring the idea and here we go heather the possibility of a twin within each of us well i think that could easily be the case i think that could be okay i was always convinced i was a twin ah well there we are you see now the story begins with um gabriel john utterson and his cousin richard enfield uh, as they pass by a large house which they do on their weekly walk together right let's listen to this then chapter one the story of the door Mr. Enfield and the lawyer were on the other side of the by-street, but when they came abreast of the entry, the former lifted up his cane and pointed. "'Did you ever remark that door?' he asked, and when his companion had replied in the affirmative. "'It is connected in my mind,' added he, with a very odd story. "'Indeed,' said Mr. Utterson, with a slight change of voice. "'And what was that?' "'Well, it was this way,' returned Mr. Enfield.' i was coming home from some place at the end of the world about three o'clock of a black winter morning and my way lay through a part of town where there was literally nothing to be seen but lamps street after street and all the folks asleep street after street all lighted up as if for a procession and all as empty as a church till at last I got into that state of mind when a man listens and listens and begins to long for the sight of a policeman All at once I saw two figures, one a little man who was stumping along eastward at a good walk, and the other a girl of maybe eight or ten who was running as hard as she was able down a cross street. Well, sir, the two ran into one another, naturally enough, at the corner, and then came the horrible part of the thing, for the man trampled calmly over the child's body and left her screaming on the ground. It sounds nothing to hear, but it was hellish to see.' 
It wasn't like a man, it was like some damn juggernaut. I gave her a view halloa and took to my heels and collared my gentleman and brought him back to where there was already quite a group about the screaming child. He was perfectly cool and made no resistance, but gave me one look so ugly that it brought out the sweat on me like running. The people who turned out were the girl's own family, and pretty soon the doctor, for whom she'd been sent, put in his appearance. Well, the child was not much the worse, more frightened according to the sore bones, and there you might have supposed would be an end to it. But there was one curious circumstance. I had taken a loathing to my gentleman at first sight. So had the child's family, which was only natural. But the doctor's case was what struck me. He was the usual cut-and-dry apothecary, of no particular age and colour, with a strong Edinburgh accent, and about as emotional as a bagpipe. Well, sir, he was like the rest of us. Every time he looked at my prisoner, I saw that sawbones turn sick and white with the desire to kill him. I knew what was in his mind, just as he knew what was in mine, and killing being out of the question, we did the next best. We told the man we could and would make such a scandal out of this as should make his name stink from one end of London to the other. If he had any friends or any credit, we undertook that he should lose them. And all the time, as we were pitching in red-hot, we were keeping the women off him as best we could, for they were as wild as harpies. I never saw a circle of such hateful faces, and there was the man in the middle, with a kind of black, sneering coolness. Frightened, too, I could see that, but carrying it off, sir, really like Satan. Oh, oh pardon me. <clears throat> um, Your turn. Enfield, <laughs> Your turn now. Yes, sir. Yeah. As, um, as we heard, um, they, uh, Enfield was saying they, they were going to... to uh, uh, make him the man pay so they insisted that um the man who, who we find out is called Hyde is to pay 100 pound to the girl's family in order to avoid the scandal that he was talking about now uh, a check was made out um and that Hyde gave the check to Enfield but it was signed by Utterson's friend and client Dr Henry Jekyll which mm, seemed a bit strange yes. exactly now Utterson in turn thinks that Jekyll is being black blackmailed by Hyde because Jekyll had recently changed his will in favour of Hyde and refused to discuss it when asked about it by Utterson, only to be told by Jekyll that he could get rid of Hyde at any time he liked and that Utterson was to drop the matter. Mm. Mm. Well, as the story um, unfolds further, it becomes increasingly obvious that Dr Jekyll cannot get rid of Hyde so easily, nor, as we soon discover, control him either. Pardon me. More deaths occur, first with the murder by Hyde of Sir Danvers Carew, an MP, who happens to be another client of Utterson, who, who in fact is, 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 a, is a lawyer. Um, and the event was witnessed by a servant. Now, beside the body of um, Sir Danvers was um, a broken half of a cane, a walking cane. Now, when the police went to Hyde's apartment, um, Hyde was nowhere to be seen. However, they did find the other half of the broken Cane, and it was quite a surprise to Utterson because he recognized it as being one that he had given to Jekyll as a gift. Now, when he tackled Jekyll about this, Jekyll handed him a note purportedly written by Hyde, apologizing for all of the trouble he'd caused, which is quite an interesting thing that a murderer he just considered a bit of trouble. Um, <clears throat> 
But Utterson, when he saw the note, realised that the handwriting was remarkably similar to Dr. Jekyll's. Mm -hmm. Now, after a period of calm, um, when Dr. Jekyll appears to be his old sociable self, matters start to take a turn for worse, not least when a mutual friend, Dr. Lanyon, dies of shock and Jekyll begins to display erratic behaviour. Now, it's not until Dr. Jekyll's uh, uh, butler, Poole, visits Utterson and tells him that the, the doctor has secluded himself in his laboratory for weeks on end that we finally come to the shocking conclusion of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which you should discover for yourself. Now, at the beginning, I mentioned that Stevenson was exploring the idea of uh, of the human being as a being of two parts. And in the case of Dr. Jekyll and, and Mr. Hyde, good and evil, though, in fact, it could be argued that Dr. Jekyll was not quite that good as he wanted his baser twin, the violent Mr. Hyde, to be dominant, hence altering his will in favour of Hyde, which leads us to the assumption that Jekyll was probably going to do away with himself or pretend to do his away with himself and then henceforth live as Hyde. Now, also, interestingly, the, the novelist Vladimir uh, Nabokov, um, when he discussed the novella, suggests that by Victorian standards, Dr. Jekyll was not a morally good person. Oh, so that mm. is interesting, isn't it? Because you always think of Dr. Jekyll being good. Yes. And well, obviously yes. he had machinations for mm-hmm. his future. It, it did indeed, it, very much so. Now, and, and it's that duality of nature um, which uh, Stevenson was exploring, which is, shows the inner struggle between good and evil, civilization and barbarity, and it's that that's often ascribed to Stevenson's work. Yeah, now, that's great. The, the, yeah, the allure of uh, the allure of the book, I mean, of course, um, was too great um, for Hollywood to exist. So much so that uh, would you believe there have been over thirty films um, that have been made, and the first one was a silent version, which was in nineteen oh eight. And in nineteen twenty, three uh, three were made um, uh, in, in that one year. Wow! Yeah. Now, the, the, most of them, one hundred twenty six, have, have followed basically the the story, but there have been comedy versions, which is such as Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But also there was one very high-powered cast production uh, which is the 1941 um, version called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which had Spencer Tracy starring as Jekyll and Hyde, Ingrid Bergman and Lana Turner. And in an early version, John Barrymore, for example, was one um, that played in the, one of the 1920 crops. And then it goes, not to be outdone, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing teamed up again in 1971, appearing in an adaptation which was called I Monster. Brilliant. And there have been plays, of course, and the plays uh, were first staged in about 1887. There have been nine foreign language films made, variously in Denmark. There were two made in India, two made in Germany, one of which starred Conrad Veidt, but that one apparently is lost. Two were made in France, uh, one in Spain and one in Russia, and that's all between 1910 and 2017. And needless to say, countless television adaptations. And gosh, just think of all those royalties. Oh, I know. That's fantastic. You can see it. It's really great. It was on um, recently the play, wasn't it? Yes. Oh, yes, about five years ago. Um, yes. Yeah, very good. So I have chosen The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Oh, right. Yes. Now, this was a huge bestseller. Debut author. Uh, it was published in 1992. 
So if you've not read the book, because books do sort of go out of favour, don't they, in a way. So if you haven't read the book, can I urge you um, to to read it? Because it is absolutely brilliant. Um, So if you weren't involved in the excitement of its first publication, then uh, it's well worth it. It's set in New England and is a campus novel. So it's based on a university campus. And it tells the story of this closely knit group of six classic students and uh, at this sort of small elite liberal arts college. And it was actually based on a college where Tarte, Donna Tarte herself was a student um, in the early 80s. Hmm. So the secret history is an inverted detective story and it's narrated by one of the six students, Richard Papen, who reflects years later upon the situation that led to the murder of their friend Edmund or Bunny Corcoran. So events leading up to the murder are revealed sequentially throughout the novel and it explores the circumstances and lasting effects of Bunny's death on this academically and socially isolated group of classic students of which he was a part. Let's listen to the prologue of the book. The snow in the mountains was melting and Bunny had been dead for several weeks before we came to understand the gravity of our situation. He'd been dead for ten days before they found him, you know. It was one of the biggest manhunts in Vermont history. State troopers, the FBI, even an army helicopter. The college closed, the dye factory in Hamden shut down, people coming from New Hampshire, upstate New York, as far away as Boston. It's difficult to believe that Henry's modest plan could have worked so well despite these unforeseen events. We hadn't intended to hide the body where it couldn't be found. In fact, we hadn't hidden it at all but it simply left it where it fell in hopes that some luckless passerby would stumble over it before anyone even noticed he was missing. This was a tale that told itself simply and well. The loose rocks, the body at the bottom of the ravine with a clean break in the neck and the muddy skid marks of stug-in heels pointing the way down. A hiking accident, no more, no less. And it might have been left at that, at quiet tears and a small funeral, had it not been for the snow that fell that night. It covered him without a trace, and ten days later, when the thaw finally came, the state troopers and the FBI and the searchers from the town all saw that they'd been walking back and forth over his body until the snow above it was packed down like ice. It's difficult to believe that such an uproar took place over an act for which I was partially responsible. Even more difficult to believe I could have walked through it, the cameras, the uniforms, the black crowds sprinkled over Mount Cataract like ants in a sugar bowl, without incurring a blink of suspicion. But walking through it all was one thing. Walking away, unfortunately, has proved to be quite another. And though once I thought I'd left that ravine forever on an April afternoon long ago, now I'm not so sure. Now the searchers have departed and life has grown quiet around me, I've come to realise that while for years I might have imagined myself to be somewhere else, in reality, I've been there all the time, up at the top by the muddy wheel ruts in the new grass, where the sky is dark over the shivering apple blossoms and the first chill of the snow that will fall that night is already in the air. What are you doing up here? said Bunny, surprised, when he found the four of us waiting for him. Why, looking for new ferns, said Henry. 
and after we stood, whispering in the underbrush, one last look at the body and a last look round. No drop keys, lost glasses, everybody got everything, and then started single file through the woods. I took one glass back through the saplings that leapt to close the path behind me. Though I remember the walk back and the first lonely flakes of snow that came drifting through the pines. Remember piling gratefully into the car and starting down the road like a family on vacation, with Henry driving clenched jawed through the potholes and the rest of us leaving over the seats and talking like children. Though I remember only too well the long, terrible nights that lay ahead and the long, terrible days and nights that followed, I've only to glance over my shoulder for all those years to drop away and I see it behind me again, the ravine rising all green and black through the saplings, a picture that will never leave me. I suppose at one time in my life I might have had any number of stories, but now there is no other. This is the only story I will ever be able to tell. Oh, why is this book worthy of a read? Well, it starts with a murder. So Donna Tartt's first trick is also her best. So you've got the prologue we've just heard. Her narrator, Richard Pappin, tells us of the murder of Bunny, a crime for which I was partly responsible. And he appears to have got away with it, and yet he's haunted by it. So we have to read on to find out how he could have done such a thing. So Coleridge, we were talking about Coleridge before. So Coleridge, mm. Coleridge said that Shakespeare always said that apprehension predominates over surprise. Um, just thought I'd just throw that in there mm. for you. And that's what actually Donna Tartt does. So as we read The Secret History, we don't so much wonder what might happen as we worry about what will happen. Mm. So we're apprehensive about, about how the story uh, progresses. And the book makes us feel that we're being let into a dangerous confidence. In fact, right from the title of the book, uh, The Secret History, we're sort of being allowed to be a member of this sort of elite group. Mm. Um, and uh, the book has got some amazing quotations. And it's about this group of um, classics um, students and their teacher. And we're all obsessed by the Greeks, aren't we? In fact, look at all the number of Greek rewritings that have been out uh, mm. recently. Um, so we had, um, remember, we had Ariadne uh, on. Uh, yes, we did. A few months ago now. Yes, and it is. That yes. Now, book is the top in the top uh, top ten. Um, so we're obviously all fascinated by the Greeks, and this has got lots of bits about the Greeks. So it makes you feel intelligence whilst reading it. It's not pompous in any way. It's not difficult, but it just helps you meet, feel intelligent. Mm. So, of course, 2222, what does this have to do with doubles or twins? Well, two of the group are the charming but secretive fraternal twins, Charles and Camilla McCauley. And it's Charles' descent into alcoholism, which means that the others are frightened he might reveal the secret. Whilst he becomes frightened, they might kill him. Mm. Um, so the book has been optioned quite a number of times by different film companies but for one reason or another the option has been released and uh, not least by the brother and sister Jake and Gwyneth Paltrow Mm. and they thought of starring as the twins Charles and Camilla McCauley and they were all on board and the film was was planning on going ahead but unfortunately their father uh, Bruce Paltrow um, died in the October of that year, uh, which of course 
caused the project to be shelved again and the rights were reinstated um, back to Tart. Now, I'm not sure whether the book actually will be made into a film now because uh, Donna Tart's latest book, The Goldfinch, uh, that was made into a film, but she hated it so much she actually sacked her agent. Mm. Talking as a literary agent, I'm, I'm grimacing here. And, yes. uh, so anyway, so many now speculate that Donna Tartt won't allow another film adaption of her work, but obviously that's just guesswork. Gosh, that's a bit harsh on the poor old agent because it's not the, it's not the agent's fault how the film turns out. He just sold the rights. Yes, I know. I think I think authors need to realise that when somebody else buys the rights to their intellectual property, it's they've got to let go, which must be mm. hard to do. Mm. But they need well, to let go and yes. allow other creative people to develop it in the way yeah. that they see appropriate. Yeah. And I think that was what um, um, uh, P.J. Travers um had trouble with um, with uh, Mary Poppins, and she she had great difficulty, um, and she she couldn't quite grasp that you know she had sold the rights to Disney, and yes. she was fighting. She didn't want she didn't want songs in it. She didn't want cartoons in it, and you know so it was really difficult. Yes. Anyway, well, I suppose when you've written something, it's your baby in a way. Well, it is. It must it be is. so yes. hard to. Oh, well, I suppose that's right. then, but same then with don't parents. Be, well, yes, but then don't be greedy and sell the rights and then moan about yes. it. Yes, ooh, you're a harsh <laughs> man, you're a harsh oh, man. Oh, yes, <laughs> we are. Well, talking about harshness, my second uh, uh, choice is another classic um, uh, in the 2-2 uh, category, and it's about harsh times, and it's A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, which was first published in uh, 1859, and it's considered to be one of Dickens' most popular novels, um, and it's set in, in London and Paris before enjoying the French Revolution, and it's claimed to be one of, of the best-selling novels of all time. I can't believe that. I know it. It, it really out out of all of of, uh, of Dickens as well, but that one should yeah, be you know even absolutely. on top of of that. And then yeah, it's extraordinary. Oh. I, I must admit. Um, like many of his um, uh, other novels, uh, this was uh, it was originally published um, as a weekly instalment. I don't you know which, as, as you know, Heather, all, all of his other works, other works were, and it uh, and it's forty five chapters. Forty five chapters took thirty one weeks from April to November, oh. uh, and it was yes, and it was published in Dickens's um, new literary magazine, which was called All the Year Round. That's a commitment, isn't it? Yeah, very much so, very much so. Now, the novel tells the story of, the, of a French doctor, Dr. Manette, um, and his 18-year-long uh, year imprisonment in the Bastille in Paris, and of his release to live with his daughter, um, uh, who is in London, and his daughter, Lucy, who he'd never, ever met before. Wow, 18 years in the Bastille. Yes, I didn't realise yes. people were locked up that long. I know. Um, and it's because of course going to the story, it's it's terrible what happened to him and how he got there. Now the story is set against conditions that led up to the French Revolution and the reign of terror. Now it's a, it's a very exciting adventure story because the protagonists are in constant danger of being imprisoned or killed, not least by Madame Guillotine. Um, now the novel compresses an event of immense complexity, it really is, um, to the scale of, uh, of family history with a cast of characters that include a bloodthirsty the ogress and an anti-hero as believably flawed as any in modern fiction. Now, our tale opens in 1775 on the road to Dover with one of the most famous first sentences in English literature. Chapter one, the period. 
It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a fair face on the throne of France. In both countries it was clearer than crystal to the lords of the state, preserves of loaves and fishes, that things in general were settled for ever. It was the year of our Lord, 1775. Spiritual revelations were conceded to England at that favoured period as at this. Mrs Southcott had recently attained her five-and-twentieth blessed birthday, of whom a prophetic private in the lifeguards had heralded the sublime appearance by announcing that arrangements were made for the swallowing up of London and Westminster. Even then, the Cock Lane ghost had been laid only a round dozen of years after tapping out its messages, as the spirits of this very year last passed, supernaturally deficient in originality, wrapped out theirs. Mere messages in the earthly order of events had lately come to the English crown and people from a congress of British subjects in America, which, strange to relate, had proved more important to the human race than any communications yet received through any of the chickens of the Cock Lane brood. France, less favoured on the whole as to matters spiritual than her sister of the shield and trident, rolled with exceeding smoothness downhill, making paper money and spending it. Under the guidance of her Christian pastors, she entertained herself, besides with such humane achievements as sentencing a youth to have his hands cut off, his tongue torn out with pincers, and his body burnt alive, because he had not kneeled down in the rain to do honour to a dirty procession of monks which passed within his view at a distance of some fifty or sixty yards. It was likely enough that, rooted in the woods of France and Norway, there were growing trees when that sufferer was put to death, already marked by the woodman, fate, to come down and be sawed into boards to make a certain movable framework with a sack and a knife in it, terrible in history. It is likely enough that in the rough outhouses of some tillers of the heavy lands adjacent to Paris, there were sheltered from the weather that very day rude carts bespattered with rustic mire, snuffed about by pigs and roosted in by poultry, which the farmer, death, had already set apart to be his tumbrils of the revolution. But that woodman and that farmer, though they work unceasingly, work silently, and no one heard them as they went about with muffled tread and rather for as much as to entertain any suspicion that they were awake was to be atheistical and traitorous yes indeed that was very tough wasn't it wasn't it indeed it was now it's very interesting there are two um two aspects um attached to this book because it was written when dickens um had recently uh, begun his affair with an 18 year old actress called ellen turnan and lucy manette the daughter in the book is said to have resembled the actress physically 
Um, and Dickens was inspired to write the two cities whilst he was um, performing in an amateur production of the play um, The Frozen Deep by Wilkie Collins. Now, there's a love triangle in the play and that reflects the love triangle in his book. However, slightly more scandalously, he was actually accused of plagiarism because when he was performing The Frozen Deep, he sat in on a play reading called The Dead Heart by Watts Phillips, which has the historical setting, the basic storyline and the same climax that Dickens used in his oh, book. Wow. I know, but oh, yes, I can see the oh, crackling going on there. There were accusations flung about. Um, as you can imagine, it was said um, that society was divided uh, in itself into two factions. There were the uh, Dickensites and friends, and there were the Phillipsites and friends. Then came the accusations and recriminations as to the coincidences and the plagiarism, and bad blood was um, spilt on both sides. Now, what Phillips was more Mortified about all this kerfuffle. However, he didn't know at the time that Dickens had been sitting in on his original play reading. And perhaps if he had, he might have changed his mind. Now, also interesting that Dickens is not really a historical author. He, he wrote only one other historical novel, novel, which is Barnaby Rudge, and that was based on the Gordon riots of 1780. And um, so perhaps um, Watts Phillips um, did have a claim after all. Now, of course, um, Dickens would have used other material for inspiration as well. And we know this included the French Revolutionary History by Thomas Carlyle, uh, materials from an account of imprisonment during the terror of Beaumarchais and records of the trial of a French spy published in the annual register. Now, one of the key themes of the book is social justice, which is always something that Dickens was, was mm. keen about, mm. which was something that he felt strongly about. Um, and it was uh, due to his childhood when he went to work in a factory to help his, his family because his father, John Dickens, continually lived beyond his means and eventually went to a debtor's prison. And poor old young Charles was forced to leave school and begin working a 10-hour day at Warren's Blacking Warehouse, earning six shillings a week. And of course, set around the French Revolution, the book is all about power of the mob and Dickens creates believable characters who act differently when the mob mentality takes over. And some of his characters, notably Madame Defarge, have no limit to their vengeance for what they perceive are crimes against them. Now, Madame Defarge is the wife of Dr. Manette's servant who had smuggled Manette out of the Bastille and hid him in the attic of their Paris wine shop, which is at the beginning of the book. Now, the poor are brutalised in France and in England alike. As crime proliferates, Dickens shows that uh, the execution in England as stringing up long rows of miscellaneous criminals, now hanging housebreakers, now burning people in the hand, or hanging a broke man for stealing sixpence. In France, it was just the same. As we heard, the boy sentenced to have his hands removed and to be burnt alive only because he failed to kneel down in the rain and mud before a parade of monks passing some 50 yards away from him. Now, Dickens wants his readers to be careful that the same revolution that so damaged France will not happen in England, which, at least at the beginning of the book, is shown to be nearly as unjust as France. But as the novel progresses, England becomes uh, comes to look a much better place. Uh, but his warning is addressed not to the British lower classes, but to the aristocracy. Oh. Well, I think that's uh, that story about that little boy um, being sentenced uh, for not bowing down after the clergy went past. Mm. That was supposed to be a true story. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. 
which Gosh. is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Yes. So I was interested in you talking about uh, the plagiarism uh, accusation. Because mm. they do say there are only seven stories, don't they? So in a way, all authors are going to have to be influenced or just retelling something that's already out there in a slightly different way. Well, exactly, because, I mean, whenever any author is, is, is interviewed, the first thing the interviewer says, oh, and, and which, which other authors have influenced you? Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> yes. it's a difference. So what's the difference between influence and plagiarism, I suppose? Yes, yes. Um, very long, deep question. Maybe we need a whole programme on it. Oh, yes, we'll do books that are similar to other books. Yes. yes. That's a very good idea. Right, now, that was a pretty tough classic that you chose there it was and i'm going to change the mood slightly good following on the uh, twins idea and this is a ghost story Ooh. and it's called her fearful symmetry by audrey niffenegger and audrey niffenegger of course is the acclaimed author of the time traveler's wife and this which was her first book so mm-hmm. her fearful symmetry is her second book and it turns her attention to sibling rivalry in this modern ghost story. Now, it's a fantastic, it's spectacularly compelling and haunting novel set in and around Highgate Cemetery in London. Now, mm. Nifflin Naga did a year's research about the cemetery before writing the book and was so entranced she became a tour guide there. Uh, that's always one of the things I mean to do, actually, is go around Highgate Cemetery. It's supposed to be an amazing... Mm. A tour that you can mm. do around the the famous and the infamous uh, right so the storyline goes that when elspeth noblin uh, dies of cancer she leaves her london apartment to her twin nieces julia and valentina now these are just 20 year old american girls who've never met their english aunt and they only know that their mother too was a twin and elspeth was was her twin So Julia and Valentina, semi-normal American teenagers, little interest in college, finding jobs or anything outside their cosy home. And so um, they decide, because what they have is they have each other, as twins often are very close, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So they decide that why not? And they move to Elspeth's flat, which borders Highgate Cemetery in London. Now, they come to know the buildings of the residence, including Robert, who is Elspeth's elusive lover. And he is a scholar of the cemetery. And as the girls become embroiled in the fraying lives of their aunt's neighbours, they also discover that much is still alive in Highgate, including perhaps their aunt, who can't seem to leave her old apartment and life behind. Mm. So that's all very, Mm. very scary. And uh, the title of the book is also about twinning because it was inspired by William Blake's poem, The Tiger. You know, tiger, tiger, burning burning bright. In the forest of the night. Yes, Yes. what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? Um, so that's the uh, that's where the fearful symmetry comes from and um, some critics have looked at 
the the verbal pun in the title. So you've got symmetry and cemetery, which sort of sounds mm-hmm. similar and looks similar. And obviously they're talking about how the twins themselves uh, are very similar. Anyway, mm-hmm. Nuffinaga is a master storyteller and her Fearful Symmetry is a fabulous book about life and identity, secrets and sisterhood, and also about the tenacity of life even after death. Mm. So there you are. That's Gosh, our twin that's, yes, books. Yes, that's good. Yes. Now, what else have you got? Well, I was reading a fabulous uh, topical uh, story today in the paper, which is that today, the 2nd of the 2nd, 2022, is the 100th birthday of people pretending to have read Ulysses. Yeah. <laughs> James Joyce's uh, famous novel or infamous novel. Yes. So it was published on this day in 1922 by Sylvia Ah. Beach. Yes, you were recognising her name, the owner of the Paris bookstore Shakespeare and Co. Um, Yeah, wow, right. Yes, it was first published there. And it is, depending on your view, either one of the most important modernist novels or impenetrably dross. And the early reviews came down for the latter. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Ah, yeah, right. They, they didn't appreciate it at all. The Daily Express said its first three opinions were disgust, irritability and boredom. So the readers of the Daily Express weren't giving James Joyce's Ulysses a thumbs up there. And uh, Sporting Times, interesting that Sporting Times <laughs> yes. are reviewing James Joyce's <laughs> Ulysses, I would like to say. Yes. Anyway, the Sporting Times says, it appears to have been written by a perverted lunatic. Uh, oh, so they didn't give it a sporting chance then, No, they, they? they definitely didn't. And unfortunately, the Sporting Times then went bust 10 years later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that doesn't mean to say that it was wrong. And it probably doesn't mean to say that... Um, its review was wrong, but it might be a judgment on the fact that it was reviewing books such as James Joyce's Ulysses. <laughs> and should have been concentrating the hunting, shooting and fishing. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder if it was the, I wonder if it, the reaction was because of the concept, because it, obviously it's actually, it's a, it's a big book, but it's over one day, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, yes it's, it's the story yes. of one day and it's Bloom, isn't it? Because um, uh, I've forgotten the surname. Bloom is is, is the character, isn't yeah, it? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, we have that... Bloomsday on. That's June, right. Yes, you, you were saying 16. that you. Yes, yes. Yeah. So maybe I wonder if that was. I wonder if that was a bit t- too modern a thing where people were expecting, you know, stories over a number of chapters, which are going to be over a number of weeks or so, you know. But this one was a, maybe I don't know. That's just maybe. Yeah, I, I think you're right because it is a stream of com- um, mm-hmm. consciousness, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes. With very little yeah. uh, full stop. So yes, um, I've got to admit I haven't read it. Well, no, I haven't either. And it's one of those books that I can't. I don't even pretend that I've I've I've, I've read it. So I can't be one of the hundreds that no. pretends to well, read it. Uh, read it. Although I do think because it's the hundredth anniversary this year, I might go to Dublin and celebrate Bloomsday. Yes, well, that'll be quite good with a pint of Guinness. Yeah, absolutely. So mm-hmm. you on Bloomsday, you're supposed to all dress up in, ah. um, in as the characters. And I was reading that the novelist uh, Colm Tobin went shopping one day on June the 16th <laughs> and everyone bumped into, wanted to know what he was dressed up as, which character went round carrying two bags of groceries. <laughs> 
But I think I'd rather like to dress up as James Joyce. I always liked the, the glasses he wore and his moustache. I thought that was always very stylish. <laughs> yes, very good. So uh, I was also reading in the uh, in the papers today that uh, Blackwell's is looking to be sold. The oh, no. bookshop, yes. Gosh, that venerable bookseller of Oxford. Which so I has to be turning in his grave. Well, yes, absolutely. So I'm not sure what the problem is, or in fact, who would buy buy it. Yes, my yes, it'd be very interesting. Because I mean, I think the um, the last time we went was a few years ago, and I noticed that whilst of course the main shop is still there, I mean, most of its other operations had shrunk or disappeared. I mean, I when in my youth, yes, when I was uh, when I was a representative working for um, the publisher Sphere Books. Oxfordshire was my territory, and being paperback, but yeah, diagonally opposite. Um, the main shop was the paperback bookshop, Blackwell's paperback bookshop, and that's all it did. It stopped only, and 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 that's gone. I presume many years ago, and there was a great manager there, which is in fact actually the managing director, uh, Ted Steele. Yes, um, and it was an amazing, and, and and this was you know for any paperback publisher rep uh, on the territory, this was the make or break call that you know you had to make because if you didn't get the backing of of that branch um, or that shop you know all your other figures would fall by the wayside and what sort of quantities would they be buying oh well well my story i have to tell you was uh, was was to do with um et and sphere had the um the novel the paperback novel oh, based and- on the film Yes, wow. and the film was just coming out, and a large format picture book. And I had to, I had to, I had to target. And I think I had something uh, quite extraordinary. Was I think it was six hundred of the paperback, yeah. and it was four hundred and twenty-seven or something peculiar because the managers sought this out. And I got permission to take Ted Steele to lunch at the Bear in Woodstock. Oh yes. And- and uh, and he was a lovely guy. And he said, oh yes, that's right. Nobody's ever taken me there. Anyway, we had this lunch, and he thoroughly enjoyed it. We were talking and talking over lunch, and nothing at all about the books. And I was starting to get really anxious about this. And then in the end, he said, oh, you want to talk business, don't you? And I said, yes, yes. I said, well, I, 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 you know, maybe we can do it in my room because I was stayed at the bear regularly, and they used to give me a nice suite, which was oh, a very nice, large yes. room. Anyway, and it had a mini bar. So I said to Ted, you know, he'd had some wine for lunch, and so <clears throat> what would you like? Oh yes, I'll have a bit gin and tonic you say I, I would never use it I never you know anyway gave gin. right so tell me what 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 did you need and I said well no I think I think it was I think it was nearly a thousand for the paperback mm-hmm. the, the novel and I said that and I said nine and then I was so naive I was quite young I said I need 427 of the picture book <laughs> I said well how about we do 500 of that and that and that was it and I got my order but yes it, I was so nervous I actually said oh, 427 <laughs> But you did have to ply him with drink to get it. (laughs) I did. But then he said, may I use your phone? And I said, yes. And he phoned up and he phoned his wife and said, I'm with Julian. Um, Can I bring him home for dinner? Oh, that was nice. Really lovely. There you are. Such a nice man. A lovely, lovely man. The good old days of being They were the good old days ever. Yeah, They really were. Yes, yeah. But those are the days when um, bookshops would actually support um, books. Yes, they would. Yes, and you know that shop. There would be a huge display of 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 of, um, of the ET books everywhere. It'd be fantastic, you know. And they were. They got behind, and they were good independents. Well, and, and Blackwells are still great. As I went, oh yes, it is. Yes, yeah, I went the sure- other day, and I didn't know the name of the book, and I didn't know the author, and I just explained <laughs> yeah. it to them, and they yes. knew exactly what I was on, and they 
took me to the book and of course they had it which was fantastic mm. um and i'm sure whoever the new owners you know will continue that but i think it just seems a, a, a shame in that it's been a family um owned company from well um yes. when the basil um opened the first shop but uh, anyway we well, wish them well yes. for the future yes. well let's see yes. right so other books we've been recommending today are Oh, yes, we've got Open Water by Caleb Azuma Nelson, published by Viking. So we have Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller, published by Fig Tree. And then we have Fall, The Mystery of Robert Maxwell by John Preston, published by Viking. The winner of the Costa Book Overall Award, The Kids by Hannah Lowe, by Blood Axe Books. Uh, Manjeet Man for The Crossing by Penguin. Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson and probably out by Penguin. I'm sure so. The Secret History by Donna Tartt, published by Penguin Books. And A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, again available through Penguin. And finally, Her Fearful Symmetry by Audrey Niffenegger. So we look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12. And don't forget, you can listen to us anytime on your favourite podcast. And next week, we'll be exploring the novels of Jane Austen. So we look forward to you joining us then. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station... There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. (laughs) 